Well, hello, Coastway Church. If you are online, welcome to you. If you are in the room, welcome to you. There are a lot of reasons why we are excited, why we are motivated, why we are energized as a young church uh, today. And uh, the first reason, which I talked about at the welcome, I'll talk about again, we can't get over this, we're never going to get past this, is that we are celebrating the surest sign of God's presence among His people, and that has changed lives. Today we are baptizing, and as we prepare to uh, baptize, we give God all the credit for the way that He is touching and transforming lives, and uh, additionally, we are starting a new six-week series today, and it's all about identity. And so here's what I'll say at the beginning of a series whenever we do this, because this is really how we think as a church, is we don't think in terms of sermons, we think in terms of series. I would say that today's sermon could probably help you. I would say that this series could literally change you. And so whether you are curious about Coastway, whether you are connected to Coastway, or whether you are a commission member with Coastway, I want to invite you to plan on being with us for uh, today, starting in the next five weeks, as we walk through uh, how, do we, how do we live out of our identity in Christ in the midst of a very confused, chaotic, cultural uh, moment. And uh, as, here's what you're going to hear me talk a lot about in this series. Two things. First of all, relationships and resources. So, in order for you to really go anywhere meaningful in life, you're going to need both of these things. You're going to need relationships and you're going to need resources. So let me talk about relationships. How do you connect to the relationships of our church? Well, we have a, an evening planned for, just for you, and it's called The Weekender. It's one of the things that we are more excited about, most excited about, than anything else that we do as a church. And so The Weekender is coming up on November Fifth, and it's going to be dinner with our team. We're gonna uh, pastors are gonna be there. I'm gonna be there, and we're gonna get to know you on a more personal level. You're gonna get dinner with our team. You're gonna hear the direction that we are moving as a church, and so excited to share. You're gonna hear about our distinctives as a church, and most importantly, you are going to be connected. You're gonna move from curious about Coastway to connected to the relationships of. Coastway. And I hope that the preaching helps. I know that the people will. And so this is your night. You can go to coastwaychurch.com slash weekender and you can secure your seat or you can go to the welcome tent on your way out and we would love to have a seat for you. So we're thinking in terms of relationships, but we're also thinking in terms of resources. And so all throughout this series, we're going to be giving you these uh, catalytic resources that are intended to take you further faster in your faith. And so on your way in, I hope that you got uh, a copy of what's called the Gospel Prayer. And if you did not get a copy of this, please make sure that you get a copy of this on your way out. This is one of the ways that we live out of our identities as worshipers of Jesus. Men, women, and children who seek to know, to love, to obey God above all Else, This is a prayer, a paradigm in prayer, that has been really guiding my prayers for the past eight years. It has been so helpful for, for me. It's been so helpful for many on our team. And we believe that it can be helpful for you as well. So make sure that you get a copy uh, of that. So here's where we're going to be for week one of Identity. Whether on your app or in your lap, go ahead and join me in Genesis chapter 1. It's easy to find. Today's simple, okay? We're keeping it really basic today. It's, you, you open your Bible, you're there, Genesis chapter 1. And if you don't have a copy on your app or in your lap, we've got the scriptures on the screens so that you can follow along. 
And hey, listen, if you're new to Coastway, just so that you can know, how do we think about the Bible? How do we preach the Bible? How do we teach the Bible? Well, typically what we will do is we will go verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter, book by book, through, through books of uh, the Bible. In fact, we just finished walking verse by verse, line by line, through Luke chapter 15. Uh, three stories that Jesus told uh, that can change everything. Uh, and even before we went public uh, with uh, weekend gatherings, we did a weekly Bible study. And so we went all the way through, verse by verse, Paul's letter to Philemon. And so already as a young church, we've gone through a book of the Bible and a chapter of the Bible. So that's what's called expositional preaching. And if you're new, that's typically what we do. But then there is something called topical teaching. And topical is basically where you'll take a verse here, a verse there, you'll bring it together. Usually there's this really clever idea that kind of brings it all together. And uh, that's one way to go about it. Then there is topositional. We're creating words this morning. Isn't it great? Topositional. So where you take a topic and you, you take these hallmark passages that relate to this theme that is pervasive throughout the scriptures, and then you, you expose it, you go verse by verse through these different flagship passages that talk about this theme. That is what this series is going to be. And it's all going to be themed around this idea of identity. And so today, what we are looking at is the foundation of our identities as men, women, and children who are formed and fashioned created and called in the image of Almighty God. Sure, there's, there's nothing more important that we could talk about because this touches and changes everything. I want to invite you uh, just to consider how important your identity really is. So you cannot get on an airplane without some form of identification. You cannot uh, open a bank account or access your bank account. You can't rent a car, buy a car, rent a house, buy a house. And most importantly, you can't go to Costco without some form of identification. You're going to need all of these things. Uh, actually, identity is so important that there is a real threat known as identity theft. And every two, sec two seconds, there is a victim of uh, identity theft. And typically, uh, what, what happens is there's someone somewhere who does not have your best interest in mind. And the way it will start with like a robocall. It will start with like a text message from a number that you don't know. Uh, or a call from a number that you don't know. Maybe it could be uh, an email that's really sketchy and shady. And uh, this, this actually, it, it happens. Psych psychologists actually say that when we fail to settle into our identities, it leads to what's called an identity crisis. I'm sure you've heard about an identity crisis. It's that discouraging point of, of confusion where you come to question, what is my purpose and what is my place in all of this, in, in life, in society? And we are most vulnerable to an identity crisis when we are stopping something we're used to or starting something that we're not used to. So maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's school. Maybe you're a new parent. Or maybe you are a grandparent. It can also happen whenever you experience something traumatic in your life. Maybe you have a scare with death. Maybe you have a sick uh, loved one whose, whose health is declining. Or maybe you've lost that loved one. Here's the leading question that I want to ask throughout this series. Do you know whose you are, and do you know who you are? Uh, Tim Keller said that our identity is whatever we look to as the ultimate source of security and worth. And so in our individualistic historical moment, here's what we're told. Find security and worth by looking inward, looking to your 
self. And I don't know about you, but this has been confusing for me over the years when I've actually tried this because it actually feels like a carousel of confusion that ebbs and flows around these. There's really, there's a lot, but there's at least five self-focused factors when you try to find your identity in you. And here's what they are. First of all, you're going to try to find it in uh, what do I have? These are your possessions. And so you're going to base your identity in uh, the amassing of possessions, wealth, whatever the case may be, uh, or uh, what, what I do. So this is your productivity. And so you're, you're basing it in your uh, ability to produce, or maybe it is what you feel. And these, these are the physical pleasures of life. Or it's what others say, and this is your popularity polls. Like, what are people out there really saying about me, really? And then there's another self-focus factor, and it's just what we'll call, uh, what can I control? And this is really about power. And if you want to put in parentheses politics, that's really what it's all about. It's, it's a grab for power. It's, it's a grab for control. Culture has a lot to say about where you need to seek your security and worth. But here's the good news. Christ has a lot to say as well. And what he has to say speaks a better, louder word. He says your security is not in your possessions. It's not in your popularity. It's not in your physical pleasures. It's not in your productivity. It's not in your power. Your identity can be settled and secured only in his presence. I found it interesting. Uh, you probably know about Steve Jobs. He, Steve Jobs is the architect of Apple products. Uh, apparently, he also had some skin in the game with Disney. I didn't know that. But he's the architect and the co-founder of Apple products. And it was really interesting. If you think about Steve Jobs, he wore the same outfit every single day. So basically, his wardrobe was, was uh, so predictable. He would wear a black turtleneck. He would wear blue jeans. And he would wear New Balances, which are some of the greatest shoes ever created, just in my personal opinion. Uh, so shout out to the New Balances. <laughs> but... Here's the thing about Steve Jobs. He's not going to win any fashion shows. He's not going to be walking any runways. But he would go back to the same outfit each and every single day. And the reason why he, he said that he did this is because it actually spared mental horsepower for him to focus his decisions on things that were more important. And some of you would say, bro, you need to look at your wardrobe. That's really important. Think about that uh, another time or two. But just like Steve Jobs would continually go back to the same outfit every single day, for us to have our identity settled, we've got to go back to God's presence every single day. To really form and flourish as God intends, this is a daily prayer. And this is a part of the gospel prayer. God, your presence and your approval are all I need for everlasting joy. And so if, if you stoop to lesser sources than God's presence for your identity, here's what it's like. Have you been to a carnival before? You're like, I'm trying to forget those days. <laughs> okay, all right. But you've been to a carnival. Have you ever been to a fun house? It's when you walk in that house of goofy, wonky mirrors, and you look like you had one too many funnel cakes on the way in, and what happens is because all the mirrors are disfigured and distorted, you can never see yourself clearly. And not only that, you're making fun of other people because you can't see other people clearly. It's not really how you were created uh, to look. So let me give you the summary of the series. When you know whose you are and who you are, it changes everything. And for us to get the most compelling clarity, we need to go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, this really is the most important foundational part of the entire Bible. Genesis 1 through uh, 11 
essentially, it's the principles that explain existence. It's the principles that explain God's creation. It explains God, it explains us, it explains uh, gender, it explains sin, it, 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 it explains sorrow, it explains the origin of suffering. So 1 through 11, it's basically uh, the principles of creation, and then 12 through 50, it's the patriarchs who advance God's mission. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to park it in Genesis 1 through 3. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, we are going to cover some very significant ground today. And we're going to go verse by verse through selected texts out of Genesis 1 through 3. And here's what's unfortunate for so many modern uh, uh, Westerners about the Garden of Eden story that we're about to read. is Like this story, like the rest of the Bible, we find it too easy to dismiss as nonsense. I mean, if we're being honest, there's a talking snake in, in chapter 3. And C.S. Lewis, he talked about what's called chronological snobbery. Let me explain this to you. Chronological snobbery is when you think that your generation has arrived. You think that your generation, we think that in our, in our age and stage of, of the world, of history, that, that we are uh, the, the most awakened to reality. We are the most innovative. We are the most intelligent. Actually, research has actually dismissed this myth. It said that some of our IQs have actually gone down. But what, what C.S. Lewis was saying is that we think that generations before us were basically a bunch of knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. And they didn't know what they were talking about. And it's a good thing that we finally got here so that we could see world, the world as it really is. I appreciate what John Mark Comer, pastor and author, said about the Garden of Eden story. No matter your interpretation... The garden story is true. For millennia, billions of people have found it to be the truest and most insightful treatise of the human condition in the history of the world. When we're, com- when we're covering a scope of Scripture that is as significant as Genesis 1-3, through 3, here's what we need. We need a lens to look. So let me give you the lens through which we are looking. Here it is. Our identity is designed by God distorted by the enemy, and redeemed in Christ. That's the sermon in a sentence. It's a summary of everything that I'm getting ready to say. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So let's stop right there. Any true quest for meaning, for purpose, for identity, must begin with God. And if you want to make sense of relationships, if you want to make sense of uh, marriage, if you want to make sense of vocation, if you want to make sense of your hobbies, your time, your talent, your treasure, you have to start with God and not yourself. And uh, we instinctively realize this because uh, when was the last time that you used GPS on, on your phone? Well, if we, if we don't really believe in an absolute truth, if we don't actually, actually believe in a fixed starting point, then you just need to go ahead and take GPS off your phone. Because GPS is use, useless unless you have a fixed reference point, starting point. If, if you just say, well, I'm going to take this road and that's going to get me where I'm going, you might be wrong, bud. You actually need a directional cue that's going to take you to where it is that you need to go. One math philosopher said that all points are irrelevant unless you have an infinitely fixed Reference point. And so from the beginning and throughout the Bible, it is clear God is our fixed starting point. 
We cannot know ourselves by ourselves. Have you ever had a friend who loves you enough to tell you you have something in your teeth? Have you ever had that friend who tells you, you've got a little alfalfa sticking up right here, you, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself? That type of friend who cares enough to actually come in close and say these things about you. You need someone outside of you who loves you enough to point out the flaws, but loves you enough to stay regardless. And that's God. God is outside of us. He sees us rightly. He doesn't look at us through a fun house mirror. He looks at us through the frame of His image, who we once were created to be and who we can once again be conformed into. He cares for us deeply. He never changes. He can lovingly show us our flaws, our faults, our failures. But He doesn't run away. He, he sticks around. There's, there's, there's two types of ways that you can give really tough feedback. Are you ready for this? You can be surgical or you can be brutal. So if, if you think about what happens in surgery, there is, there is a, an individual who has an instrument that can, that can cut, that can hurt. But it is for a purpose to heal, not to harm. And then you think about violence, somebody taking a knife and weaponizing that against another human being, that would be brutal. Did you know that we can speak tough truth in a surgical way that is intended to help, not to harm? But we can also speak it in a brutal way if we're not careful. The, the, the feedback that God gives us about our brokenness, it is surgical, not brutal. So let me summarize up to verse 26, and then we'll pick up in uh, verse 26 in just a moment. But basically, uh, the story of creation... Genesis, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. Let me just give a quick cliff notes for, for uh, all of us. Uh, Genesis uh, 1 is basically structured into six sovereign work days. So God goes to work creating creation. And each begins with God said and is all about God bringing life into existence by the power of His Word and the pleasure of His will. And here's how it starts. The Spirit of God was hovering over dark chaotic, formless waters. And this is a design pattern that we can trace throughout the Scriptures. God turns chaos into clarity. Uh, God turns something that is formless into something that is orderly. A lot more could be said, but there's enough context to go to verse 26 where we pick up on day 6. This is the crown of God's creation. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So what's the us all about? Did you notice that? God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Well, if you look closely, we see that all three persons of the Trinity are already present in Genesis uh, chapter 1 in the first couple of verses. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God. God is Father. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God is Spirit. And verse 3, and God said, according to John 1, verified by Colossians 1, both John and Paul, the in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. And so we see the, the activity, the divine dance of the Trinity already at work in the first three verses of uh, Scripture. And so from the beginning, we see the evidence of this triune God. And here's how to think about it. All persons are equal. All persons are eternal. All persons share the same essence. Equal, eternal essence. It's mind-numbing. It, it, like scholars and theologians and PhDs for years have contended for clarity, and it's, it's a mystery. It's a divine mystery that we hold fast as followers of uh, 
the biblical God. There's two things that are important that you really practically need to know about the Trinity. First of all, God has always existed in relationship. And so why do you have a longing to be needed? Why is it that you find yourself needy? It's because you were created in the image of a relational God who within the dance of the Trinity both gives and receives, both gives and takes. And so that's, that explains your existential longing for relationships. But second of all, God created us not because He was lonely, but because He is loving. And so what happened is God desires to create a people in His image, just like a man and a woman. And biblically speaking, this is the best analogy that we have of the Trinity, is you have two beings coming together in marriage, to uh, share one, one body, one essence, and then from that is born a child, born in the image of the parents who became one. And so what we see is that just like the, the love of two parents coming together in intimacy can produce a child, so does the love of God coming together in unity imputes His image to you and me. Verse 26b, And let them have dominion, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So already we have a good theology of animals and pets. And I understand that this is holy ground for some of you. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to use exactly what the scriptures are saying about the relationship that we should have with animals and pets. First of all, we see that God cares for what God creates. Okay, we, we see this later on in verse 30 that God gives food and plants and nourishment to all of the animals. But we also see that the animals are not created in the image of God. But they are included in the stewardship of man. So here you go. Before you bark back or start throwing things at me, let me go ahead and give you, there is a biblical basis for having a pet. There is. Uh, it can be very meaningful, but it can quickly become something that we idolize. And here's why I want to touch on this, because one of the increasing blind spots of our day is to prioritize pets ahead of people. Strangely enough, 44% of pet owners who are married say they would rather cuddle with their pet than their spouse. Isn't that strange? You're like, well, you don't know my pet. And I'm just like, well, if you really want to talk about that, my email is tanner at coastwaychurch.com. And beyond that, I think we should probably just stop right there. But here's, here's what's going on. We, we, have it, we have a dog named Dawson. Okay, he's great. He's fine. He came with Victoria. Okay, so I'm, I'm not renouncing pets. We're trying to recover priority and make right value judgments about our relationship with created things versus the creator. And for God, the value judgment is crystal, crystal clear. We are to respect, welcome, care for, and enjoy animals. But we are never, ever to worship animals especially in ways that prolong our passivity toward people who are created in the image of Almighty God. And so we come to verse 27. So God created man in His own image, in the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So the first principle I want to pull out concerning our identity is this. Your identity is designed and defined by God. At Coastway Church, we deeply believe that God is both designer and definer of all things that are good, all things that have been created. And here's what happens. What God creates, the enemy counterfeits. What God designs, the enemy distorts. What God defines, the enemy redefines. 
He's really not that clever. He just takes what God created that was good and he makes it really bad. God designed men, women as distinct, essential, equal counterparts in his wonderful image. And so naturally, if God is the designer, then God is the definer. He's the one who will define how to best reflect his image to the world and within the church. So we recently, as a part of us moving for the sake of mission to plant Coastway Church, our family, we bought a house. And uh, when we, we bought that house, we were actually building a house. And just before we moved in, our uh, contractor, he did what's called a walkthrough. And we would, we would walk through the house, and he, the, he was basically telling us how the house was built and how the house works best. And he said, if you ever have any flooding issues, this is what you need to know. If you ever have any hot water issues, this is where the heater is. If you ever have any pest problems, this, this is what you need to know. If you need to hook up the Wi-Fi or have a bad signal or whatever, this is what you need to know. And in that moment, because he was the designer of the house, he was defining the best way for us to form and flourish within the house. Similarly, Genesis 1 and 2 is God's walkthrough of creation. He is defining how we can image God best spiritually, sexually, relationally, vocationally. The designer is the definer. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And we see that on the seventh day, creation was finished. All of the resources and raw materials needed to innovate, needed to advance technology, now exist within the earth for, uh, for man to exercise dominion and, and share in God's rule and reign. But by this point, here's what, here's what we see. God and man are resting in peaceful, unbroken relationship with one another. This is heaven down. Heaven on earth. What, is, what does man do? Worships and walks with God as God pursues and provides for man. This was God's design from the beginning. And as early as Genesis 2, we are given all the clarity we need to know what a very good gospel-centered identity looks like. And it's underneath this big idea of God as designer, God as definer. And so I, really quickly, I just want to give you three characteristics of a gospel-centered identity. How do I live out of who I am in Christ? First of all, and this comes directly from verse 28, a gospel-centered identity is received, not achieved. Notice how God's, it, it, it says that, and God blessed them. That is the gospel in four words. And God blessed you. Here's what we need to see about this. Before we behaved well, before we built our resume, resume, God was purposed to bless. He looked on us with approval before we had ever performed. What this means is that God's approval of us is not staked 
in what we do for Him. It's staked in what He does and says about us. It's staked in God's image being upon us and God's work on our behalf. And here's why this is so significant, because too many of us live our lives with the wrong starting point. Instead of in the beginning God, we go in the beginning Jeremy, in the beginning self. And we think that all of my identity is going to be formed based off of what I do, what I think, how I feel. When in reality, in the beginning, we have to go back to the life and the love and the labor of God in Christ And so this is the reminder that you need to preach to yourself every single day. It's on the gospel prayer that you should have received. In Christ, there is nothing I have done that could make you love me less and nothing I could do that would make you love me more. So just to... The Bible is literary genius, by the way. I'm just going to go ahead and say this. Let me show you how. Because uh, the, the pattern of us receiving and not achieving, it's actually woven into the creation account the six sovereign work days so what does god do on days one through six he works on what day are we created day six what's the next day sabbath so god works before he rests and he creates us to rest before we work that's the good news of the gospel How good is God that He created us on the eve of the Sabbath? So our first experience was waking up to, watch this, an unhurried God who loves and approves before we ever perform. Now what was the life of Jesus all about? And and personally, I believe that this is one of the big reasons why Genesis 1 is ordered the way that it is is because here's what we believe about the Bible. We believe the Bible is from God, about Jesus, and for us. And so for you to understand really the Bible teaching around Coastway Church, you have to understand we think it's all about Jesus. And so I I legitimately believe that this is one of the reasons why Genesis 1 is structured the way that it is, is because what was Jesus' life all about? It was God coming down to recreate what you and I had ruined with our rebellion. And here's what's amazing. After working... Living and dying in our place, Jesus was laid in Joseph's tomb on what day? It was the sixth day. And in the Jewish calendar, the Sabbath was Saturday. So it was crucified on Good Friday, laid to rest the sixth day. The seventh day was the Sabbath day. Now what was he doing? Have you ever wondered, why didn't he just rise on Saturday? Well, the reason why he didn't rise on Saturday is not because he had lost his power or just because he was taking a nap. The reason why he didn't is because he was fulfilling creation again. Just like God rested on the seventh day of creation, so did Jesus rest on the seventh day of the week, which was Saturday. And without saying anything, he was saying everything. Because I achieved, you can now receive. Because I worked, you can now rest And Coastway Church, understand, why do we gather like this? Why is it so important for us to be in this setting every single week? It's because we need to be reminded that it's about what God and Christ did for you, not what you do for God. We need to rehearse this. We need to preach this. We need to remember this. And that's why we come together, because our hearts drift and and grow weary. Next, a gospel-centered identity is enmeshed in God's mission. Take a look at verse 28. We see God says, uh, he blessed them, now go be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, 
have dominion. So what, what God is saying is, this is my mission. And like a loving dad who wants the family business to continue through his sons and daughters, so does God want the family business, his mission to continue with you and us. And here it is. Be fruitful and multiply. Here's what's interesting. Just before Jesus' death, after they leave the upper room, he's washed his disciples' feet, he takes them to a garden. And in, in that garden, he would have looked up and he would have pointed at a vine. And he would, have, he would have said, I am the vine, you are the branches. So unless you remain in me, there's God's presence, you will bear no fruit. But if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, hey, I've not changed. Be fruitful. And the way that you're fruitful is by resting in your identity, which is found and resourced in my presence. But then watch this. After Jesus conquers sin, death, Satan, and hell, he rises again. He appears to his disciples. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, what does he say? Hey, go and multiply. And so what God is doing right here is he's saying, I have not changed. My mission has not changed because I've never left or forsaken you. Go and do as you were told from the beginning. Creation recreated. Hope restored. And so from the beginning, the mark of a gospel-centered identity is active partnership in God's mission. You've probably heard the phrase, the glory of God. What does that mean, really? Well, it, it, it means the goodness of God and the greatness of God gone public. How does that happen? Through human partners. He shares the project of renewal, the project of recreation with you and with me. Not because he needs us, but because we're his and he loves us. And for you to fulfill this faithfully, there's two factors have to be present. First of all, you need proximity to God. So proximity is about being a worshiper. We're going to talk about that next week. I hope you'll be here for it. But then you're going to need participation. That's our identities as servants, as stewards, as family members, as witnesses. And so the pattern of creation, what is it? It's peace in God's approval. That's my identity. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop with day seven. It doesn't, stop, it doesn't stop with rest. It starts with rest, but then it continues beyond day seven. And what happens is we participate in God's work. This is our priority. This is our activity. It flows out of our identity. Next, a gospel-centered identity is established by God's word. And God said. This phrase is repeated 11 times in two chapters. So when Jesus goes public with his ministry, he starts by speaking words of power and authority. And in doing so, he brings order out of chaos, just like in Genesis chapter 1. He's recreating again. At his word, devils were cast out. At his word, storms were calmed. At his word, the lame walked. At his word, the sick were healed. At his word, rebels were restored. At his word, death was defeated. Order from chaos. Jesus is our great recreator. He comes down to redeem and to renew. And what's going on from Genesis to Jesus is simple. If you will order your identity based on the word of God, chaos can turn to order. Brokenness can turn into beauty. Everything that God says in Genesis 1 and 2 is His depiction of a world designed and defined by His Word. And He says, it's all very good. And this is why at Coastway Church, we give the first word to God and we give the last word to God. We believe the designer is the definer and what He says carries the most weight and offers the most help. 
So resource alert. Next week, you're going to leave here with a resource that is going to help you rest in God's Word. We're going to give you a reading plan, and we're going to give you a tool to help you read the Bible, go to the Word of God for a word from God. So, all right, so here's what, here's what we do. We skip ahead to chapter 3, and let me just catch you up really quickly. Part of God's blessing man was putting loving boundaries in place. He said, there's a tree. If you eat it, you will die. Stay away from it, and every, everything will be great. And this is something that we need to recognize is that God's word can and should be trusted. Even when it's a warning. Even when it's something to stay away from. And so suddenly, here's what happens. There's this cunning character who was not mentioned in Genesis 1 and 2 who suddenly shows up. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So understand, this is not some red cartoon character who sits on your shoulder and pokes at your conscience. This is not Will Ferrell in a devil costume shredding the gnar on Saturday Night Live. This is a real and literal devil, personified. He's a spiritual being. He's created by God. He revolted against God. He was cast out of heaven, and he took residence on earth. A a lot of the details are mysterious. We don't know, but here's what we know. He possesses more power and influence than any creature in the universe other than God. And you're just like, are you seriously going to stand up here and tell me that you believe in a literal devil? And my question to you is, are you seriously going to sit out there and tell me that you believe in a literal wind? You can't can't see the wind. How do you know that it's there? Well, I see its effects. I see it blows trees over, you know, it'll capsize cars if it's going so fast. I see its effects. That's why I believe in it. Well, that's why we believe in the devil. We, We believe in the devil because he is the dark mind behind the evil in our souls and society. He's the dark mind, the dark horse behind systemic racism, economic colonialism, terrorism, legalism, substance abuse, sexual confusion, and more. And so Jesus encountered the devil and he profiled him as the father of lies. So here's what you need to know. He's crafty. He's a master manipulator. And he draws you in and you can't help but listen to his lies. And so here's what we see about the enemy. Your identity is distorted and destroyed by the enemy. Chapter 3, verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, sin is not just rule breaking, it's rule making. God never said don't touch it, he said don't eat it. And so oftentimes what we'll do is we'll add rules to regulations and we'll make God seem even more restrictive than he actually is. Now, should they, should they have touched it? Probably not. But this is what happens in many churches. is We'll add rules and we'll make God seem a lot more restrictive than he really is. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So let's run through some game film on our adversary. Notice how he says, you will not surely die die. So here's what the devil's deception is all about. He wants you to forget about death. He wants you to forget about eternity. He wants you to forget that each of us, we're holding a stick of dynamite, and we don't know how long the fuse will last. And if he can get you outside of that reality, then he's twice as likely to get you cornered. Then he says, your eyes will be open. You will be like God. So what is the essence of sin? It's putting yourself in the place of God. You take the place of God, you'll be independent, you'll be better off without Him. 
So I don't know about you, but I like to play dress-ups when I was a kid. I would dress up like Batman. I would dress up like Darth Vader. I would be Robin Hood and all of these other characters. And for a while, my parents would play along. Like, oh, there's Darth Vader. <laughs> Great, watch out, the lightsaber. And, but then I got to an age and stage where it was just like, Jeremy, you're not Darth Vader. I'm sorry, I'm sorry buddy, but you're, you're just not. And there comes a point in our life when we have to say, hey, you're not God. I, I have a hard enough time programming the Charter Spectrum subscription. I lose my keys. Uh, all, these, all these things, and I've, I have all these reminders, like I would be a terrible God, and you would too. But the good news is you don't have to be God. The best shop-worn lie that the enemy sells is to make you think that you are. And then he goes on, verse 5, you will judge good and evil. So here's what he wants you to do. He wants you to determine what is true and what is right. But here's the problem with that. God has already designed and defined what is very good. And so the problem here is that good and evil have been sub subjective to nations and individuals throughout history. So when we determine good and evil in our own eyes, this is what leads educated Germans to round up an entire race and feed them into incinerators in concentration camps. This is what leads racist politicians in the American South to tell Rosa Parks to sit on the back of the bus. When we define good and evil, I'll tell you what it leads to. Death, division, and disease. Better left to God. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Notice this is the first time that man has called something good that God said was very bad. And here's where it leads. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So following the fall, we have the advent of relational separation. We have shame. We have anxiety. We have fear. We have pride. We have blame. We have confusion, and in chapter 4, it escalates to death through violence. And it's as a result of the serpent's deception, man's rebellion, a curse rests over all creation. And so here's what God says in the following verses. Childbirth is going to be painful. Work is going to feel like drudgery. Your marriage, your relationships are going to be riddled with conflict. Death, disease, division. Are coming. And yet, beaming through the stormy skies of sin, there is a gracious glimmer of hope. It's not over yet. Jesus got the first word, he's going to get the last word. And this is where we see our identity is redeemed and renewed in Christ alone. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 15. This is God saying to the, the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so what God was saying to the devil is that this victory is merely temporary. Enjoy it while it lasts, but a day is coming when I'm going to send another Adam. He's going to be born of a woman, born of a virgin. And instead of engaging you at the tree of deception, he will eliminate you on a tree of crucifixion. On the cross, what was Jesus doing? He was redeeming from rebellion. To redeem means to buy back with a great price. And he was paying the ultimate price to satisfy God's just wrath against sin. 
And you ask, why, why the cross? Well, Genesis 3 explains why. Take a look at verse 21. God shows us. And then the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So the fig leaves were ineffectual. And God takes something that Adam and Eve, that, that they had made that was very temporary, which represents our works and our effort, and he gives them something more enduring and more permanent. Actual clothes that will actually clothe. And yet, despite their rebellion, God shows grace and mercy toward his wayward children by sacrificing an innocent animal to cover guilty rebels. And so from this point on, what is the mission of God all about? It would be covering sin through a sacrificial substitute. The theological term for this is atonement, which means to cover the consequences of injustice and wrongdoing. And what Genesis 3.21 does is it stages this divine design pattern that the rest of the biblical storyline will hinge upon, and here it is. For sin to be redeemed, a sacrifice must be offered. For identity to be restored, a sacrifice must be offered. Where there is no sacrifice, there will be no salvation. And loved ones, understand, Jesus was the innocent substitute. He was the one who bought you with a great price. He redeemed you. He's the one who brought you back to His presence. And He and and he alone can give us the identities that our hearts are so deeply searching for. And so here's what I want to do. If you would just bow your heads and open your hearts. This prayer that you received on your way in, this is how you combat the lies of the devil. This is how you come to a place of settled security in what Jesus says about your identity. And I want you to take this out with you, and I want you to pray this every, every day. It could be in the morning and the evening. It could be multiple times throughout the day, to go back to your identity as a follower of Christ. And I just want to start by praying this prayer over you right now. Father, for each of us, we are wholly undone and we are wholly unworthy apart from your presence. But in Christ, there's nothing we could do right that would make you love us more and nothing that we've done wrong that would make you love us less. And in Christ, your presence and your approval, it's all that we need. It's everything, God, that we need for everlasting joy. And so, Lord, may we be to others as you have been to us. You've been caring, compassionate, concerned. And, Lord, as we pray, may we measure your compassion by what you did at the cross at Calvary. And may we measure your power according to what you did through the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.